Well, the Bible reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray now before we hear the Bible taught. Father in heaven, please open our eyes to the wonders of your grace and how terrible was our situation before that grace, that we would not boast in ourselves, but in him who died for us, in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I'm John Warner, and it's good to have your company, whether you're back at church for the first time or online. We're here in Brighton Cemetery because that Bible passage that we just heard read out is all about being dead and alive. For more than 15 years, I've walked or ridden through here and sat on benches like this, benches like this to, or to have a think and pray about life, to sift my thoughts and priorities, to reflect on who or what I'm living for in light of my own death and in light of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, we know there's nothing quite like death of a loved one to sift our lives and our choices, is there? Nothing like death to sift who or what we're living for. And Jesus told heaps of stories about how finding life with him in his kingdom is like finding the ultimate treasure buried in a field. Then you quickly go, sell all your fields, sell everything, do whatever you need to, to buy that field and get that treasure. And Jesus reckons it's the most urgent, important, precious treasure we can each be chasing after in life. Jesus walked among the dead. He raised the dead. He himself came back from the dead. And I reckon that gives us pause to consider Jesus' words to us this morning. Now, maybe the idea of God and a relationship with God is a bit new for some of us this morning. Well, welcome. That passage we just heard read out, it's a great summary of what Christians believe. And, and why bother with Jesus? Why get involved with a good local church? Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul to a local church of Christians in Ephesus, now in modern Turkey. The church actually he started. It's a relationship enrichment letter. Uh, and that Bible reading this morning, um, if you might have picked up, there's a bit of a before we met, after we met flavour to it with a so what verse. Now there is an outline available if you like to take notes and follow along. 
And you'll notice the three headings in that outline, they really capture the big idea of the passage today. That Christianity is all about a merciful God making dead people alive into masterpieces of grace in a mortuary world. That first verse in this, if you want to call it almost a divine love song, it's the before we met verse. God wants these new Christians in Ephesus to remember just how spiritually bankrupt their lives were before God saved them. That life without God is like living in a mortuary world, like living in a cemetery. It's there in verse 1. Have a look with me. Verse 1 in our Bibles. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. You were dead. You were like a corpse on a slab in a morgue, like a the dead in a local cemetery. Now, I brought along my friend Napoleon this morning. He lives in this black box here, okay? A bit shy. And you'll see that Napoleon, he is a medical skeleton. And say good morning. Good morning to Napoleon. Here he is. We've affectionately named Napoleon, Napoleon Bone Apart. Now, Napoleon has helped Gita and three of our children learn anatomy for their studies. And I brought Napoleon along this morning to help us understand why Paul says we're all dead like Napoleon, even though we are breathing. See, I can talk to Napoleon, can't I? Like, hey, Napoleon, it's good to see you again. How's your day going? Napoleon can't talk back, can he? Because it's it's a one-way relationship. Well, actually, there is no relationship because it's dead. Because Napoleon is dead. See, you were dead. It's a metaphor to describe spiritually just how relationally dead to God all men, women and children are apart from Jesus. Now, it's so sad when a relationship goes into an arrhythmia and dies. And I'm sorry if that's happened to you. A mate of mine who'd been having some challenges in his life, he decided to pull a plug on his marriage. Decided to switch off all the, the life support systems and people who were helping him. And it's been hard watching the fallout, to be honest. But human relationships fracturing and dying, it points to a much more catastrophic relationship breakdown between us and our maker. And God gives three reasons why our relationship status with him is dead apart from Jesus. And the first is that we are captive, that we are captive. Did you pick that up in those first couple of verses? As for you, you were dead in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit of who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, Paul's using language here to describe those adversarial forces of evil who are against God and against God's purposes of love for your life and mine. Just because we can't see Satan, a name that actually means adversary, just because we can't see Satan's squad, of evil spirits, it doesn't make them any less real or any less of a threat to you or I, does it? I can't see the COVID-19 virus, but I believe the evidence that it is there and it's a threat. Well, so were these Jesus powers, uh, these evil powers, says Jesus. Jesus himself said we should watch out. There is a spiritual dimension to life, a spiritual battle going on for people's souls and where they will spend eternity. But now, if humanity is captive to these unseen powers apart from Jesus, does that mean that when you or I sin or transgress that it's actually not our fault then? Well, you know, the devil made me do it. Uh, no. <laughs> that brings us to our second C. 
You see, apart from Christ, we might be captives to evil powers, but we're still 100% culpable. We're still 100% culpable for our choices. It's there in verse 3. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desire and thoughts. You see, who's carrying out the desires and thoughts of your body and your mind? Well, you are, aren't you? No one makes us drive, you know, 10 kilometres over the speed limit, run that red light. Uh, no one's making, you know, gossip, you gossip about your friend or tell that little white lie to your spouse to lash out at your kids or break that promise that you'd made to them. No one's making you fudge your taxes or watch that porn again. Now, sure, life's busy and there are things like viruses that are outside of our control. But aren't those things that affect our relationships most? I mean... Aren't these behaviours actually in our control? They're your choice and mine to do or not do what is loving and good. And deep down we know that, well, the important first step in mending any broken relationship is we have to own up. We've got to own up for what we've done. And that brings us to the third C. You see, why are we captive and at the same time culpable? Well, it's because of our natural condition. Our natural condition. It's there at the end of verse 3. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. By nature. You see, our natural bias is always going to be towards sin. Like a lawn bowl, really. Just to move further and further away from God. Now, the third chapter of the Bible explains why that is. You see, first man and woman, they chose to listen to the delicious lies of the devil. And what was the lie? Well, that they could be like God, that life would be better without God, that they wouldn't die if they disobeyed God's life-giving word. Now, that day was not just catastrophic for Adam and Eve, but for all their offspring as well. They became spiritually dead to God. And all people since have been born as spiritually, relationally dead to God under his wrath or anger. The Paul's reminding us here that We're all culpable for our own sin. We're captive as well because it's our natural condition. Now, our kids aren't going to be taught this view of humanity over here at the school, are they? During my long service leave, I wanted to show the truth of this, that that the evidence in the world is plentiful. And so we visited Cambodia. We went to the killing fields, walked around, uh, so many bones, the result of Pol Pot's murderous regime. You know, the saddest, though, was seeing the killing tree where thousands of babies were grabbed by their ankles and smashed against this tree by Pol Pot's army of Cambodians against their own people. It's why Cambodian has made the killing fields into a museum, why there's museums from World War II in Europe. It's why we have Anzac Day, lest we forget, lest we forget the reality of evil. So we don't forget that human beings, we are really all capable of these things. And so because of this and how we treat God and God's world, we can understand why God says that all humanity is under his wrath or anger. Now we know that to be relationally dead to someone is to be under their anger, isn't it? I mean, who of us hasn't experienced this? You've said or done something that's made someone really angry and it's like you become momentarily dead to them. You know, that deafening silence, the cold shoulder, being sent to the corner, go to your room. You just feel cut off. 
Now, God's anger is not like ours. It's not capricious. It's not mood dependent. It doesn't depend on sleep or what sort of day we've had. No, it's a good, just anger that's born out of a holy love for humanity. It's a right anger that's purposed to limit the spread of evil and to get our attention, to bring us to our senses and to bring people back to God. Notice the Apostle Paul even includes himself in this at the end of verse 3. We're all dead under God's anger. So the question, I guess, is do you believe it? Do you believe that this really is how dire life is apart from Jesus? When my brother-in-law had a heart attack at his sailing club, he was he, when he was a goner. There was a doctor there, though. He cared enough, had the expertise to keep him alive, get him to Flinders Hospital, arrange for the cardiac team to take him straight into surgery. My brother-in-law survived. He was as good as dead. Now, dead people can't save themselves, can they? They're utterly dependent on the help of someone outside of themselves to be saved, to restart the heart. Well, that brings us to the second verse of God's love song here. Paul now pivots to the most beautiful melody here in verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7. Have a look with me. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. What we've got here is a picture of a merciful God making dead people alive. A merciful God making dead people alive. You see, in Jesus, God's come running across the universe into this morgue of a world to make spiritual flatliners like you and me alive. And what's God's motive for doing this? But God who is rich in mercy. Now, seeing mercy in action, it's pretty memorable, isn't it? And it can even be life-changing. I grew up on a dairy farm twice a day, every day. A hundred cows were milked. All the cow poo was pressure hosed down a drain, under a road and into a paddock. A hundred cows, twice a day, 20 years, that's a lot of cow poo. In summer, this lake of cow poo in the paddock, it would crust over. Now, there I am, I'm a young lad playing in front of the dairy. My dad's milking the cows. My sister, Jenny, in her rubber boots, has decided to go for a walk out into the middle of this lake of cow poo. She stops and waves. Suddenly the crust breaks though, and my sister starts sinking into this lake of cow poo. It's got to be one of the most horrible ways you can go, surely. She's screaming, help, help. I'm screaming, dad, dad. Next thing I see, a blur of my dad jump the rail fence, sprint across the road, hurdle a fence, go through this lake of cow poo, grab his daughter up and carry her back out. She's safe. He plonks her down next to me. Now, I love my sister, but there was no way I was hugging her that day. (laughs) The love and mercy of a father and mother for their own children. I mean, we're going to go to great lengths, aren't we? To provide for them, to rescue them, to pay off their debts. See, it's just a glimpse into the riches of God's loving mercy for us in Jesus. He came running through the sinful manure of our world in his own son to die the death for you and I that we deserve, to take all the anger that you and I deserve for our sin. Jesus has drank and and drained the cup of God's wrath completely so we can be forgiven all our culpable sin, so we can be freed from the captivity of evil and healed of our sinful nature, so we can be made relationally alive to God again. And when did God do this? When we were dead 
in our transgressions. You know, so great and good is God's mercy. He not only saves us, but he secures us a seat with Jesus in heaven now. It's there in verse 6. Have a look with me. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, when you put your trust in Jesus and become a Christian follower, it's, it's as if you've already been raised and seated with Jesus. Now, of course, we don't actually experience this until Jesus returns. But so irrevocable is God's promise. So unbreakable is the glue of our faith union with Jesus. God says it's a done deal. Ending up in heaven when you die, it's guaranteed by God himself for those who believe. Wow. I mean, it's like being given the best ticket to the best seat you could imagine. And in 2017, I turned 50, Aaron turned 21, and we were given a couple of the best seats. It was the year that the Adelaide Crows finished the other end of the ladder. <laughs> My dad had brought, uh, bought two gold founding member tickets when they were started in 1990. He'd paid for those tickets for 27 years, and he gave Aaron and I those two seats to the grand final in 2017. I mean, what an amazing gift. 100% all expenses paid. We just had to turn up. And you could say that my dad had been securing Aaron's seat there even before he was born. I mean, he's only 23. This is a whole lot of love, isn't it? And it was an amazing day. Wow. To be there at the home of footy and cricket, sharing a drink with your son. We had the best time. <laughs> well, until quarter time. Um, let's not talk about what happened after quarter time. But we've got it on good authority from Jesus that Life in heaven's MCG, the true home of every person, is going to be so much better. Well, that brings us to the third and last verse in God's love song here in Ephesians. You see, we've had the before we met verse. We've had the after we've met Jesus verse. Now we finish with the so what verse. And we begin with a question that maybe some of us might be thinking about. You see, how would I go about getting hold of one of those tickets that guarantee me entry into heaven's MCG when I die? What do I need to do? It's there in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Just like when we stuff up uh, in a human relationship, and, well, forgiveness needs to be forgiven, given, doesn't it? Well, it's the same with God. You can't earn it. It can't be paid off. It can't be bought or bartered. And the good news is that God's forgiveness, it doesn't need to be. It's already yours. And that's what grace means, undeserved gift. Someone else paying for the gift. And, of course, the gift is not a thing. It's a person. It's Jesus. You see, think with me. The only reason Aaron and I were sitting on those two seats at the MCG in 2017 was because of our relationship with my dad. It's true, isn't it? It's not resumes, but right relationships that opens the doors that truly matter in life, and especially in death. You know, God longs to give you one of these tickets. The question is, do you have this relationship with his son? Jesus is the ticket. Jesus is the doorway to heaven. You know, there was no way Aaron and I were going to say no to those two grand final tickets from my dad. <laughs> well, friends, how much more foolish would it be to say no uh, to the God of the universe who wants to give you a ticket guaranteeing you entry into heaven when you die? 
Now, how would you take up that offer? Well, you'd pray a prayer like this. Jesus, please have mercy on me, a sinner. Please forgive me for my sin. Help me to live with you in the driver's seat of my life today and every day. Amen. It's that simple. And if you haven't prayed a prayer like that yet, please can I urge you to do that today. Raises another question, doesn't it? You see, while we wait to be shown our seat to heaven's MCG when we die, what are we, what are we meant to be doing with our life now? Well, that brings us to the second application of this love song. It's there in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, that word workmanship there, it's handiwork, it's poema. It's where we get our word poem from, actually, in the Bible. It's used in two ways. First, it's used to talk about, well, what God created at the beginning. And second, it's used to talk about, like, craftsmanship, the the expertise, the the craftsmanship um, of a creator. Here's one of my wife's amazing paintings. There's so many of them in our house. Gita is the Monet in our family. Our house is a mini art gallery. When people visit, quite rightly, Gita is praised for her handiwork. And Paul's point is that, well, every Christian is like a Mona Lisa masterpiece, a priceless work of living art, handmade by the creator, put on show for the world to see. So I want to finish with two concluding applications. The first is, as we begin to gather face to face again, we gather just to express our thanks to God, to show off and speak about God's work of grace in our own lives. You know, the Louvre in Paris is the most amazing art gallery, but there's no more precious, more exhilarating art gallery that we can all be a part of and actually helping to build than your local church. Because it's where we find priceless, handmade, living masterpieces of grace. It's why it's so precious we can be meeting face to face again. So wonderful, but yeah, a little bit weird. Like getting on that horse again we haven't ridden for a while. What's it been, four or five months? A bit like that young couple I married at the end of last year. They got to spend just three weeks together, and then he had to go off to Duntroon to train as an officer in the army. With COVID coming along, they haven't seen each other for six months. And now he's back. He came back two weeks ago. And you can just imagine, it's just been wonderful, but a bit strange as well. Because they've had to be patient with each other. They've had to learn again how to love and serve the other. And now they're both really committed Christians, super committed to making it work. But it's a bit like this for us, I wonder. You see, if we're honest, the efficiency of church online, well, 50 minutes out of a Sunday morning, (laughs) we've been able to even go away and just connect in on a Sunday morning. You see, like this married couple, I wonder that as we come back together again, that, well, it's going to take some getting used to turning up every Sunday. We're going to need to be patient with each other. It's going to take some readjustments of our priorities. And friends, what Paul is doing here in, in chapter 2, he's reminding us why living for Jesus and his kingdom priorities, it truly is the treasure we can be living for. Earthly treasures, they'll rust. And they will be of no use to us when we're standing there before Jesus. Because the only thing that's going to matter on that day is whether you have this faith relationship with Jesus. 
and how we've lived with Jesus, how we've lived out his kingdom priorities, how we've loved Jesus first. Surely the most shocking words we can hear on that day is, Jesus say to us, away from me, I don't know you. And so perhaps the first challenge for all of us, including myself, in the coming weeks, is just recalibrating our priorities uh, around meeting again face to face. Coming to love and serve one another, to do these good works of grace, to build your local church. And that's connected to the second and our last point this morning. You see, Jesus hasn't come back yet because there's still lots of seats available in heaven's MCG. God wants them filled. He wants the people of Mount Barker, the hills, the south coast, to hear this good news message of grace and love for them. And this is a team sport. We've all got a role to play. We're all desperately needed out on the playing field. Being a Christian, it's not a spectator sport. You just won't find a grandstand in a local church. Um, It's not a hobby that we can sort of do when we've got time. Now, for some of us, it's not going to be wise to meet again face to face. But it's, and that's why um, we're going to keep church online going. But surely the greatest threat to us is not a virus, but it's sin. It's, it's forgetting, forgetting this grace. Like we forget a cup of tea that we've made and left and come back and it's cold. <laughs> you know, sadly, another letter will be written some years later to these Ephesian Christians asking them what's happened. Your love for God has cooled. You've lost your first love. You've, you've stopped remembering. You've stopped rehearsing and singing this divine love song. Now, if in your heart of hearts you're aware that something of your first love for Jesus and meeting with his people has cooled, can I suggest that hanging out in your local cemetery, uh, sitting on a bench like this, maybe even with a Bible, rethinking your priorities, rethinking the full measure of God's grace, because you were once dead. But because of God's mercy, he has made you alive, alive to him. By grace, you have been saved. You are a precious masterpiece of God. And we're made now to do these good works of grace, to be part of building local churches, taking the good news of Jesus out to those who are still to hear. And we do this because God wants every seat in heaven's MCG to be filled on that day. And we do this for God's glory. For God's glory. Amen.